Welcome to El Cafecito, the podcast for the Latin American Studies program at the Spanish and Portuguese Department at U of T. My name is Anna Carneiro and I'll be your host for Season 5, House Blend. For our first episode, I met with Donald Kingsbury, the Vice President of the Canadian Association for Latin American and Caribbean Studies and a professor at the Political Science and Latin American Studies departments at U of T. I asked him about becoming an academic and his approach to teaching, and how to find hope and joy in political science and politics. This interview was recorded on June 29, 2022, at the Roberts Commons at the St. George campus. If you'd like to participate in our podcast or give us some feedback, the link will be in the description of the episode. We'll also provide links for all the recommendations brought by our guests to the show. Hope you enjoy. Cheers. And I think I should mention that this is the first time we're meeting in person, even though we've known each other for almost three years now. Mm. Not three years, two, two years? Almost three, I think, because we first... Uh, Anna and I first started working together the, the first summer session of the pandemic. Yes. Um, so summer 2020. Summer 2020. So I guess it feels like three academic years. But yeah, we've, we've and, and I think this is the case for a lot of students and, and people in general. Like we've, we've kind of moved into these little virtual cocoons and we only know each other in two dimensions. Even though the pandemic is far from over, um, in some places more than others, uh, we are at a point in summer in Toronto where we're able to, uh, in some cases, meet each other <laughs> for the first time, yeah. which is the case, yeah, which is us. No, it's so good to know you're not a hologram. <laughs> well, or jury's still fake. out. <laughs> oh, no. So speaking of titles, uh, I always like to ask my professors and TAs even, how did you become an academic? Because that's a path that I've considered and I still am considering. Yeah, that's a really good question. I, um, I think I became an academic partially by choice and partially by accident. Um, I, I, when I was an undergraduate student, there were a lot of Questions that I that I had that that I weren't wasn't able to to answer in courses, and I found some of the answers to that in, in activism. And this is in the United States. Uh, I was an undergraduate at the University of Minnesota, and I was very involved in in solidarity movements with the Zapatista Rebel Army of, of Southern Mexico and, and different anti-fascist and indigenous movements. And a lot of my classes weren't really addressing any of the sorts of questions that we were encountering. Uh, in the flesh, uh, you know, on the streets every day. And so I went to graduate school uh, in California with, you know, really animated by, by wanting to understand things a bit better, you know, understand how power relations work, how they work unequally, um, you know, in uh, how they work unequally both in the streets and, and, and between states, uh, between countries. And uh, I very quickly found out that graduate school is about the worst place to go to try to understand how power works. And I had the opportunity to move to Venezuela and uh, work for a while for the government of Hugo Chavez. Um, and so I dropped out of grad school, convinced that um, 
that wasn't the way to go and, and moved to Venezuela for a little bit over a year. Uh, long story short, I very abruptly had to move back to the United States. Uh, and when I returned to the United States, I, I decided that continuing my graduate studies would be a way for me to continue trying to address some of the, the questions having to do with the relationship between peoples and, and the environment and states that I had, had been living every day in, in Caracas and uh, finished my PhD and, and everything kind of becomes path dependent after a while. So here I am, an, an academic creature living in academia. Okay, that is not what I expected <laughs> to hear. <laughs> I thought you'd say something like, yes, from my undergrad, I knew I wanted to walk these halls and teach, but I guess reality never really goes that way or usually doesn't go that way. The thing about being a, uh, a professor who works at a place like this, the University of Toronto, and departments like Latin American Studies and Political Science, uh, is that you, you really, th there's a lot about the job that is, is really um, unbearable. Um, a lot of it that, that you know, most students and, and people who will be listening to this recording, like they, they, they hear people complain about it all the time. Bureaucracy, precarity, um, <laughs> the fact that, like, you know, life is not keeping up with inflation. Um, we're increasingly, you know, living lives that feel like they're detached from, you know, the, the general descent into ecological collapse and, and 21st century fascism that surrounds us, no matter where we are. Uh, and uh, that, that's a reality that we walk with every day uh, in academia or, or elsewhere. Yeah. The perks, though, <laughs> is that, you know, as uh, you, you get to work with really amazing people. For myself, it's students above all else. Uh, you know, people who um, are going to have to continue navigating the wreckage and who, I mean, the type of students I end up working with are the students who are really concerned with, with doing what they can to leave the world better than they, they found it, you know? Uh, and I think that's, not everybody gets to say that. And I think that's a real, real reason why I um, you know, continue in academia, despite, despite everything. The other thing is I get to ask questions and keep learning and keep ingesting and producing knowledge, which is, uh, which is a hell of a drug. Okay, uh, that makes it more exciting <laughs> from my perspective. There's a lot of paperwork yeah. too. <laughs> I think that's most places nowadays. No. I don't know. Said, how did you end up in Toronto? Or U of T even? Um, I ended up, so yeah, I'm, I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I'm from the Rust Belt of the United States. Uh, I always say that, you know, I was born in the Great Lakes and in a, in a Great Lakes um, environment, uh, climate, but I, I moved to California and then to South America as soon as I could. Um, I don't mind you. Yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, I ended up in, uh, in Toronto just because you go, uh, one of the things about academia that is both fortunate and unfortunate is it is, um, even more so I think than in other lines of work, you are forced to move across continents, uh, for work when it becomes available. Um, you have much less choice actually. Uh, and so when a job becomes available, you move. Uh, moving on from Toronto to back to teaching because I'm still curious about your approach to teaching mm. because 
over the last four years, I've encountered a lot of instructors who often see teaching as a sort of requirement or this kind of thing they got to deal with to mm. keep their position and they just follow, you know, do their best to deliver something, but they're not necessarily enjoying the process of creating a class or mm. a course and teaching it. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about how you approach teaching. Um, so, so maybe I'll, I'll, I'll go back to Venezuela. Um, when I was living in Venezuela in, in 2006, 2007, 2008, um, I, I was teaching um, for, a, for a government school here, um, the Escuela Venezolano de Planificación, um, and it was a school that was part of the, the Ministry of Planning and Development, and the people that I was teaching there were uh, community activists. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm a, I'm a gringo, and, and, and so I very quickly learned, <laughs> I learned a lot more from my students, uh, or I learned as much from my students as they learned, learned from me. Um, I'm very much uh, a, a believer in this sort of dialogical approach to learning that comes from Paulo Freire and others that says, uh, you know, classrooms are places where students can learn from each other and where the instructor can learn from the student as much as, um, as, much as students learn from the, the instructor, uh, particularly in the sorts of things I teach. I don't, I don't think students are just empty vessels that are there to be gratefully filled with whatever I barf out at them. Um, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm older than most of my students and I've been reading longer than most of my students, so there's some things that I can, some perspectives I can offer, some contexts I can, I can provide. Um, and there are, there are things that, you know, there are lessons that I can, can, can show. Um, but I really, I, I really think that, that the classroom is a, is a place for um, you know, collective learning and meaning making. And, come out of every class. I mean, you know, everybody has bad days in whatever they do, whether they're, you know, sleeping for a living or, or, or teaching for a living. Um, I've had some crappy sleeps, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I, I think that when you're teaching, you really, you have an opportunity to build a, a community and build knowledge that the person across from you will potentially take with them for the rest of, of their life. I think that's really probably the only reason I keep doing this. Um, so yeah, so my approach to, to learning is, is I, I'm, I, I, I'm thankful for the opportunity. I, I just said learning rather than teaching. That's interesting. Um, <laughs> I was about to say, that's yeah. kind of a Freudian slip. Yeah, no, it, it, it totally is. A cool um, one. Yeah, well, I hope. <laughs> I think it's a gift and it's an opportunity. And anybody who doesn't treat it like that should, would be much happier doing something else. And I guess I've got a lot of resentment for the people who would be much happier doing something else that are trying to turn the university into that something else. Um, we're not a for-profit institution. We're not, a, uh, you know, we're not an incubator. We're not a, a <laughs> innovation applex, right? Like, um, innovation happens not because you put a million banners up celebrating innovation. It happens when people work together and share knowledge and don't have to click through 14 paywalls to access a journal article. Uh, yes. Precisely. So, no. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing your journey in teaching and, no. you know, these questions that I've always kind of reflected since moving here. There are so many cultural differences when it comes to 
the university environment mm. in Brazil versus here, Brazil where I'm from, of course. Mm. Uh, and I have friends who went on to become academics in Brazil and they always, you know, tell me stories and their own journey. So it's always interesting to me to hear from people here what their journeys are. Mm. Difficult topics and we often don't spend enough time talking about the not necessarily positive side, but mm -hmm. you know, the inspiring, the joyful mm. parts of what we're studying, mm -hmm. you know, the success stories, the victories of the people who thought uh, who fought mm -hmm. and thought, mm -hmm. hopefully. Um, yeah. So I was wondering if you could teach that class, what would you include yeah. as recommended readings or films? Yeah, it's, I have started saying that, that more and more because I teach on uh, you know contemporary Latin American politics and Latin American political history. My my formative years as a kind of political being and citizen of the world were involved in. in solidarity work with the Zapatistas or um, more locally in the United States in groups like anti-racist action. And so there's a lot of like fighting against going on. And the Zapatistas, one of the things that, that stuck with me subconsciously, I think, is there were always an emphasis there on, on creation, that, that liberation has to be for everyone or else it's not actually liberated. But I've also, you know, particularly after living in Venezuela and seeing, you know, some of the negative turns that Venezuela has taken in the past 10 years uh, and teaching increasingly on topics that have to do with the climate crisis and with the all but complete inadequacy of, of any sort of response by our so-called leaders to address the climate crisis and then and add on to that the uh, you know, the experience of the last few years of the pandemic and the complete evacuation of any sort of, of, of moral leadership from the so-called, uh, you know, commanding heights of the global economy and, and, and global geopolitics. So one of the things that I've been reminding myself is that I didn't start doing this kind of work because I wanted to be depressed. And I think that there's a certain way, and I think, yeah, I think there is a, like a, a certain like kind of psychological thing that happens when, when gringos study Latin America, which is let's, let's see the wretched of the earth and keep them forever frozen in that kind of Polaroid picture in all of their abjectness, right? And when the world is a bleak place, which it is right now, um, it's easy to kind of wallow in that. And I think that's incredibly dangerous and self-serving. So yeah, I went into class about, about joy. Um, and I joked, and I have joked that it would be about puppies and ice cream. Um, and as I've been kind of scribbling notes about what that would mean, um, I think what I mean is what I get from, from the Zapistas, and what I mean is what I get from Paulo Freire, and what I mean I get from Enrique Dussel, which is that uh, joy, the kind of joy I'm interested in is the joy that comes from working together, uh, sort of collective struggle and collective success. It's not a joy that, that is like an akin to like an optimism. Because I think optimism is something we tell each other, tell ourselves in bad faith. When things are bad and we don't think things will get better, we, we whistle a happy tune and, and you know, give $2 to baby Jesus. That's not, that's not what I'm interested in. I'm more interested in people working together um, 
and, and living their lives. Because, you know, even in the worst of circumstances, people still alive. Um, so what are the what are the kinds of what are the kinds of readings I would I would assign? Um, I'm thinking uh, particularly because you know, for people, whenever you listen to this, we're recording this just a few days after this really historic victory in uh, in Colombia, where Gustavo Petro and, and uh, Francia Marquez is vice president, uh, to uh, rather left of center, um, you know, not not just like left left of center or liberal within the North American political spectrum like lefties, progressives, were elected um, to president and vice president in one of the most conservative countries in, in South America. And Francia Marquez is, 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 is particularly uh, interesting, important, uh, inspiring, and useful because you know, she comes from uh, a very working class you know, background. She comes from you know, being a, uh, you know, a housekeeper um, and a you know, day laborer to an environmental and community activist to, um, you know, to the vice presidency of Colombia as the first Afro-Colombiana person in uh, that office. And then one of, you know, the second, I think, Afro-Colombiana in the, the executive branch of government in Latin America. Um, and, you know, you read like her, her statements, you read the, the sorts of speeches she's given over the years, not just on the campaign trail. And it's, it's never about you know, oh, woe is us, <laughs> you know? It's, it's always about um, that collective pursuit of a life worth living. Like you even listen to like, you know, this, this famous Ali Primera song, he's a folk singer from the 70s in Venezuela, uh, Techos de Cartón, uh, cardboard uh, roofs, right? And it's, it's uh, you know, the first line is, you know, how, how sad my people live. Right? And it's a song about class and about living in slums, and it's, it's sad, but there's, there's this kind of like hopefulness to it, right? Uh, there's this kind of life to it that I think really illustrates the sort of thing I'm getting at. Um, I'd be interested in, in, in getting students to read some of the work of Martha Harnecker. Um, she's a Chilean, recently passed just a few years ago, a sociologist, I guess, would be the best way to describe her. She left... Chile after the, uh, the Pinochet coup in 1973 and, and moved to France and studied political philosophy with, with Louis Althusser and like you know, all this kind of like high, high degree of abstraction political theory. Um, but then um, shortly after her, her exile in France, she moves to Cuba, um, Cuba, which is at a really interesting time of, of the revolution uh, in the 1970s, 1980s. And rather than like dedicating herself to very abstract Marxist thought, she um, starts the process of, of collecting, you know, essentially testimony. Where like she has, you know, volumes and volumes of books where she, where the book is just, she says, "Here's the person I'm interviewing. Here's the struggle they're involved in." Um, you know, and we're talking like a page and a half of introduction, not like 14 pages of telling us what we're supposed to get out of the interview. And then it's just the interview of um, people who, who brought about participatory budgeting in, in Brazil, um, folks working on the, the Right to the City movement in, uh, in, in various parts of Latin America, in Colombia and in Brazil, um, you know, progressive governments getting elected against all odds in Venezuela. Um, Venezuela is where I met her. She, she had moved from Cuba to Venezuela. Oh, you to, met her personally? Yeah, I mean, you know, like we met 
I think we had we had dinner once or twice with a group of other people. Um, but like I had known her work, it was kind of like a you know fanboy moment. Um, yeah, so. I'll admit that this is kind of a fangirl moment for me as well. Because you like Martha Hunter? No, because I like your work. Oh, oh, but you're too kind. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm. I'm yeah, I'm going to start crying. I'm being, I'm being a quiet interviewer because I'm just listening and being like, yeah, yeah, no, that's, yeah. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, and I'm, I, I, thank you. That, that, that is really, um, that's humbling. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm honored that you would um, say something like that and, and find, find value in you know, the things that I'm trying to do. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean... I'll share some unsolicited advice okay. that I received in my first or second year, mm-hmm. which was um, find a prof that you like and stick with them. Hmm. And I didn't quite understand why, especially because you normally need more than one reference letter. So <laughs> like, why just one prof? But now I kind of see it, you know, it's like find someone whose work you're interested in. Hmm and who's you know a person you not only tolerate but get along with no, preferably no, that's important <laughs> that's important and and just do that for the rest of your university years and that's worked well for me yeah. and here we are me now. too <laughs> yeah for for listeners yeah biography autobiographical biographical moment um yeah i've, I've been working with anna for yeah, like we said, three years, but but we also got to work on a senior thesis together. Uh, when I say together, I mean she did all of the work because it was her thesis. Uh, but uh, which is you know shameless plug for you know students listening to this. Uh, you know, a senior thesis is an opportunity to um, you know do your own research, to follow the questions you're interested in, uh, and to work with a prof who you you know you've had a good um, rapport with um, or wanted to work with more. That, that like, coming back to this question of like what what joy and what it would mean to study joy, like I really think that that's that's key because even when you're like at the the lowest, right? When when everything is is you know when when Bolsonaro is elected, right? When um, you know when the world finally cares about the Amazon because you know, a tragedy that that Dom Phillips was assassinated recently. Uh, this British journalist working on, on questions of deforestation and indigenous rights in, uh, in northwestern Brazil. But, um, you know, now people are paying attention to, uh, you know, something that's been facilitated by four years of, of uh, hyper-extractivism under Jair Bolsonaro, um, but which didn't start with him. Right? Yeah. Um, so, like, even when you're at your lowest, right, where, where it's nothing but, but rage, uh, there's, I think it's important to remind yourself why are you, why are you pissed off, like why are you upset, what is animating this this feeling, and I mean for me it's and, and I think for many people that I've, that I've spoken with or read it's 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 there's there's love right there's you know. Um, you can't have rage unless there, there's love somewhere in there. And I think you know, the kind of love and joy that I would like to, to teach about and share has to do with the, the things that come out of encounters with others working together. And the other person I'd read, just to kind of 
wrap this up is I, I think like anything by Eduardo Galeano. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> almost anything. Yeah. I mean he uh, because again like he wrote three volumes of, of the history of Latin America in uh, in these uh, in, in little vignettes that are often depicting you know um, the massacre of, of indigenous people by conquistadors the, the overthrow of governments by the United States the uh, you know sacrificing of entire nations to debt in the International Monetary Fund um, and that's that's bleak and that's dark but why care unless there's some sort of memory or, or 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 kind of lingering shadow of joy right? um, and I think that comes really comes to the, the fore when, when you're with others who, who share those stories uh, and you build them again together um, yeah that gave me a lot of thoughts but um, I was gonna mention Rebecca Somet as well yeah. I, I was reading her memoir mm-hmm. uh, Collections of Marginal Existence. Yeah, yeah. And she also says that whenever she's writing about something that angers her, it's because that thing is harming something she loves. Yeah. And that's. So back to the interview and okay. your profile. Uh, what's a project you're excited about? Yeah. Oh. Um, so uh, for the last. Three years now, I've, I've been working on um, a project that has to do with our responses to the climate crisis. Uh, responses that I, I am, and you know, I'm not alone in this think, think of. Um, in particular, I, I'm, I'm, I'm focused on the role that resource extraction is being projected to play in, in climate change mitigation. And I'm interested in lithium mining in particular. And in part, this is because uh, what lithium presents as like the key ingredient to lithium-ion batteries, which are necessary for electrifying uh, existing power grids in the north, and for um, you know powering or, or providing energy for electric vehicles, is it, it they seem to provide lithium-ion batteries the kind of place they fit in blueprints for so-called energy transitions, responses to the climate crisis, provide a response to the climate crisis that is primarily concerned with inconveniencing as little as possible the very same people who produced the climate crisis in the first place. Uh, And so here's where some of that rage comes in. I really think that uh, this is this is uh, a short-sighted. If for no other reason, then I think it, it won't. It, it's not up to the task. <laughs> like, sure, we need electric vehicles. Uh, yes, but I think uh, you know more importantly, we need you know electrifying you know, mass transit, changing the way cities work, uh, and and you know really reconsidering uh, a global division of. of labor and power and nature that says you know places like northwestern Argentina and northern Chile and southern Bolivia where some of the world's largest lithium deposits are located are places that can be sacrificed because they're just sources of raw materials for the global north 
So lithium, what I'm interested in with lithium mining is the ways in which patterns that are very familiar to us in terms of how the planet is divided um, between the north and the south, the center and the periphery, you know, pick your preferred terms. Uh, these patterns that have defined uh, modernity, that defined the world that, you know, as we know it since the, the, the 16th century, are being, uh, you know, not not revised, but just kind of rebranded for the, the, the post, post-carbon future. And so, so I, I'm really excited after two years of, of not being able to talk to people directly affected by these proposed expanded mines. I'm really excited to be able to talk to, to people and get their, their perspective. Because oftentimes, one of the things that, that I've been able to piece together through you know, two years of interviewing people on Zoom and talking to people um, you know, from communities that are being affected by not just lithium mining, but copper mining and, and nickel mining and graphite mining and all the other raw materials that are necessary for decarbonization, is that many of these people aren't opposed to mining per se. Uh, they're opposed to the way in which mining is imposed upon them and the terms they're forced to accept um, or, or, or have no choice but to accept. They're, they're opposed to the violence that comes with extractivism um, but not necessarily opposed to extraction itself. Mm-hmm. Meaning, you know, humans have had a complex relationship with their environments since there were humans. That, that, that you know, can sometimes be circular and regenerative and, and sustainable. Um, and that, that involves some extraction, right? Whether it's, it's, you know, food, whether it's animals, whether it's minerals in the ground. Uh, extractivism is, is an ideology that's peculiar to you know European modernity that says you know humans are above and separate from nature nature exists only for our benefit we can pull whatever we need out of the earth out of each other and damn the consequences in the name yeah. of progress and not just need also just whatever we want yeah. right yeah. I think the biggest takeaway from my four years of political science is that there is nothing inevitable about the way we organize our societies yeah. and our economies. Yeah, that's re- I think that's really, really important. And I think a lot more, um, I can't believe I'm going to say this, I think a lot more young people, uh, a lot more people uh, your age, are, are embracing that. I think that, that so there's, um, there's a quote from uh, Frederick Jameson, who's this literary critic philosopher, that gets kind of retold and paraphrased and, um, and uh, you know, mangled, and I'm going to mangle it now, but, but the, the gist of it is, is that it is, uh, it is much easier for us to imagine the end of life itself than it is for us to imagine the end of capitalism. And we can see this in disaster movies and in the kind of collective shrug and, and folding of arms that happen whenever we talk about, you know, maybe we should reassess the imperative to grow beyond all else when we respond to the climate crisis. And I think that, that um, for the generation of people that um, 
and I, I can include myself in this, um, although I'm, I guess I'm on the older edge of that spectrum. Um, like we've all been raised in the shadow of the climate crisis. We've all been raised with, you know, uh, for me it was a hole over the ozone layer. And it is frustrating that we're still where we are, but at the same time, you know, as you said, it's good that more of us are yeah. growing up with that message. More, more of us are growing up with, but also like a willingness to say, not just, oh man, that sucks, we should change. Um, but, but I think there's an increase, because every other indicator is also like going bad in terms of inflation, in terms of inequality, um, you know, you're seeing like a greater, uh, like a renewed drive towards unionization in places that have been like, you know, historically anti, well, anti-human, but like anti-worker, especially like the United States. Um, you're seeing, I think, and, and for people listening, like this, we're, we're also doing this in the days after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Um, you know, officially relegating women to a, like a second-class citizenship status, um, you know, criminalizing the ability to control your own body if you're you know, a woman or someone with a uterus. Uh, you're seeing a, a re, uh, you know, not just a, you know, people mobilizing in the streets and protesting this, but you're also seeing people, you know, very actively blaming the Democrats as much as the Republicans in that because the Democrats have, have been fundraising for generations on if you don't vote for us, the Republicans will overturn Roe v. Wade. And here we are. And here we are. And here we are. Um, yeah. And, and I think that, that people are saying, like, look, there are alternatives and there need to be alternatives. And it comes back to the Zapatistas. You know, good things, good vibes. Uh, <laughs> What's the funniest story or memory from your time in Venezuela or from immigrating to Canada? Mm. Like a loss in translation moment or a cultural blender that mm. makes for laughs? Uh, it makes for some laws. Actually, uh, so this won't be Venezuela. Um, this was like when I was much younger. I was uh, nine, 19, 20, um, and I was in. Um, I was in Guatemala, um, and uh, some friends of mine and I are hiking up a, a mountain, and um, uh, an old volcano. And we had a um, a guy, a guide with us, um, who was taking us up. And uh, we got to the top, and we're, we're drinking water and we're eating snacks. And and uh, this guy, this guy actually like he's he's. Uh, He's actually speaking a Mayan dialect primarily, and so we're we're kind of tri- like triangulating our, our conversation between us, um, my friends and I, and, and, and the, the guide. Where you know, we're, like Spanish is the the lingua franca, the shared language. Anyway, so so I'm having this like this kind of you know progressive. I don't even know how to put it like political moment where we're talking, and, and for some reason. He refers to us as as Americanos, right, as Americans, and, and I said, no, 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 somos todos Americanos, soy estadounidense, right? Like we're we're all Americans. I'm from the United States, and go into this, you know, probably really grammatically mangled, uh, you know, speech about you know Uncle Sam doesn't own the Americas, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's all of ours, you know, invoking Jose Marti, you know, the little Marti I knew at the time, and. Uh, 
as I'm, he just kind of interrupts me with this kind of like, that, 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 whatever. And, and then, you know, has me stand up, stands next to me. He comes up to like my chest <laughs> and, he, and he points to me and he says, you know, Americano, he points to himself, Guatemalteco, right? Like there's this sort of like, you know, you know, gringos are tall, Americans are tall. Like there's, you know, we're just different, you know, mm-hmm. get off your soapbox. It was a humbling moment, right? Uh, you know, we laugh, uh, we laughed about it, thought about it more about, well, you know, why are Americans taller? It's not, it's not necessarily because we come from a taller species. It has to do with, you know, history and diet. And sorry, I'm getting glum. I know this was supposed to be for lulls, uh, but uh, no, I like I like this kind of lost in translation where it's not just like the, the lack of translation within a language or an idiom, but also like the ideas are just. Like, you know, I was trying to uh, speak in, in somebody else's revolutionary, like, script. And uh, this guy was like, nah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny you mentioned that story because I did not see myself as a Latin American until I moved to Toronto, oh. which I found is actually very common for Latin Americans. Um, my friends from Ecuador, from Peru, they all found out they were Latinos when yeah. they came to Toronto. Yeah. Which is always interesting. I, I, the part of that, you know, that's just, that's, that's, you know, good old fashioned white supremacy, right? I mean, like, but yeah, it's, it's, it is, I've, I've got a lot of friends like that too, who, um, you know, in Argentina, well, I mean, first of all, Latino, Latina doesn't exist in, in Argentina or Brazil. This is like a USA category that the Canadians in their own, you know, in their infinite wisdom, like everything else, have followed Uncle <laughs> Sam's lead. Um, so yeah, yeah, no, I, I totally feel that, <laughs> or hear that, I should say. Finally, I'm also asking guests to recommend something to watch, something to read, something to listen, and something to eat or drink from Latin America. I think the suggestion I would make would be to eat food with friends uh, and eat food in public and eat food in a way that you can, uh, you know, enjoy it um, as part of a kind of uh, shared vibe. Um, That's what I think of. Family meals, community meals. That's a cop out, but I'll take it. <laughs> well, no, I mean, like, like uh. I, I remember going back to going back to Venezuela, and because of like you know the the, the tragedy, right? Because of what's happened in Venezuela uh, over the course of the past ten years, you've got a ton of Venezuelans opening arepas here, right? And mm-hmm. so it's it's really easy to get get, get arepa in Toronto. And then I would go back to 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 Venezuela and tell my friends that like. Yeah, you can get an arepa, but it's $12 Canadian. And they, like, spit in string of curses because, you know, an arepa is, like, it, it, it's, like, you know, it's a sandwich. It's, it's what you make at home when you come, when you're, when you're done with school or you make it for breakfast or you eat it on the street on your way to work. It's not something that, you know, costs more than what many people make an hour. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's the Toronto tax, I guess. I don't know. It's a cop out. Um, I would Have say you? if you're if you're going to go out for um, for food from the Latin American region, avoid any place that advertises itself as having street X. Um, I'm so yeah. so um, so sick of that that description. Um, street tacos, street pizza, street no. Food is food, right? Yeah. Um, so, but if you do have to go out for, uh, I would I would suggest many of the places that I know used to exist 
in the in Kensington Market, which is also yes. I was gonna ask if you've been to Gus. Gus is a good place. It's five dollars a taco, oh. but they're really really good and okay. they're soft tortillas. So mm -hmm. the OG taco. Nice, nice. Uh, okay, so someone watch, someone read, someone listen. Is that oh, too yes. much to ask? Yeah, I mean, um, something to read. Uh, I mean, it's for people who are uh, interested. So for like English speaking and reading, small press of Edinburgh named uh, Chor, C-H-A-R-C-O Press. And the, the press, um, the only thing they do is they do... Uh, translations of contemporary literature, like contemporary, contemporary stuff, kind of stuff you won't uh, in translation from like the big publishing houses. And they're, they're doing really good work. And I would suggest people um, re look at their website, um, charcoalpress.com. Uh, uh, like uh, like a, a book I just recently read was Havana Year Zero, which takes place during the special period, but it's kind of a like detective novel set in the backdrop of Cuba in the 1990s when blackouts were common, right? Um, but it's got this really interesting thing it does with like narrative and narration and, and place and um, yeah, so oh, lots of cool. lots of really great stuff there. Um, something to watch. Can say En el Nombre del Litio? En el Nombre del Litio is a, is a, wonderful, uh, a wonderful documentary made by some colleagues in Argentina about the consequences of lithium mining in, in, uh, in Argentina. Yeah. There's also a movie that I, that's on my list to watch. So I'll, say, I'll, I'll send this as homework for myself. It's, it's a, a book, it's, an, it's a documentary called Naib Pasaran. Uh, and it's, it's about uh, the Scottish factory workers who built the engines for the Hawker Hunter uh, aircraft that were used by Augusto Pinochet's military during the military coup. And when these Scottish uh, tool and die and engine workers discovered that the, um, the engines they were building were going to uh, maintain and replace the very same uh, motors for the very same planes that had uh, you know, demolished the presidential palace in 1973 during the coup against Salvador Allende, uh, they said no. <laughs> And they, they destroyed the, the machines and they put them out in the, in the, the Scottish weather to, to get rusted. And they refused to resupply uh, the Chilean Air Force. And so there's this documentary. Um, but it's this great story of solidarity. And yeah, well, there goes a tip on that. <laughs> uh, sabotage. Yeah. <laughs> War efforts. Yeah, um, yeah I think you gave a lot of organizations worth checking out. Yeah. Okay, check out OLAS. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. check That's out OLAS. Yeah. And sign up for the newsletters that Portuguese and Spanish put out. They're really great. And okay, now I would like to try this new thing, which okay. is a game for the podcast. Okay. Since the podcast name is El Cafecito, mm -hmm. I try to bring coffee-themed things to it. Awesome. Uh, we're drinking coffee right now. Um. Uh, and the game is called Chug, Drink, or Savor, <laughs> based on the game Af, Mary Kill. I'm not sure I can swear on this. <laughs> which is basically a game where you rank your preferences, uh, but in this case, it's based on 
something you would drink just for caffeine, which I'm calling chug. <laughs> uh, something you drink, which would be more of a morning coffee. You don't necessarily think of it when you're drinking it, but you enjoy it. And savor, which is when you drink the specialty coffee your friend brought from Latin America, for example. <laughs> Drink or savor. So I chose academic life things because you're an academic, mm-hmm. whether you like it or not. <laughs> I think I should say all three at the same time. Oh, oh do I have to, I have to rank it, them? Yeah, you have to rank them. I should say all three at the same time. Okay. Research, peer review, academic conferences. Oh. So chug, drink, or savor. Well, I mean, it goes, it goes research, conferences, peer review, <laughs> in that order. Although, I, I like it in terms of best to worst. Although, I don't know, conferences, conferences can be great. Um, they can also be like really, really massive carbon footprints for, you know, fly across the planet to speak for 15 minutes and, you know, pay $2,000 for hotels. <laughs> yeah, it always felt like a lot of work like a bigger version of this meeting could have been an email yeah but like this conference could have been a meeting yeah kind of uh, i feel like i made it too easy for you peer review i knew it was going to be true yeah. anyways um but i'm not an academic so that's the best <laughs> i could come up with that's okay that, that's what it looks like from the outside i think that's it thank you so much for the interview um conversation sorry it was a bit of a quiet interviewer but again i was very delighted to hear in person without buffering (laughs) (laughs) and yeah uh thank you so much yeah thank you thank you